1: In the 1950s, the automobile was king. A new federal highway system and dreams of urban renewal took hold.
2: They felt that the only way to solve the problem at the time was to become more like the suburbs. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm
1: John Denkowski. Many of those highways are now broken and in need of repair. We'll look into what's behind the rebuild of one important New England interstate, and we'll remember the communities we lost during urban renewal, including one city's Little Italy.
3: There was no closeness anymore. There was no comata, compadre, next door that they could go and
1: talk to. We'll ask what are the most important issues heading into this election for each New England state, and we'll tackle another burning issue. What exactly are you looking for at the Antiques Fair?
0: Whatever catches my eye. I fall in love and I get it. You know, whatever it is, if it's made out of pretty wood, I'm falling in love.
1: You'll fall in love too at the Brimfield Flea Market. It's next.
4: Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
1: This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We're going to start the show with a few stories about how we move ourselves around New England and some of the consequences. First, we've been closely watching proposals to build new high-speed rail through the region that could drastically reduce travel times from Boston to New York and Point South. The Federal Railroad Administration has been considering three plans with a variety of old and new pathways for the trains. A decision on a preferred route is expected sometime this fall. But now emails obtained by a group opposing a route through the coastal town of Old Lyme, Connecticut, seem to show that the FRA has had a preferred route for a while, and yes, it's the one that goes right through that town. Kimberly Drellick's been covering the story for the day newspaper in New London.
5: Well, as soon as the news surfaced, Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut uh, said the documents raised serious concerns about the transparency and sincerity of the process, and he's demanding an explanation from the FRA Local officials are also searching for answers about what exactly this means. I know I can't speak for all the residents in Old Lyme, but I know certainly some have told me that there's a sense of despair and distrust uh, over this news.
1: What is the problem that residents there have with this route? Maybe you can explain where it would go through and what they think it would do to the town.
5: So this um, route is a inland bypass between Old Saybrook, Connecticut, and Kenyon, Rhode Island. And the maps that have been released so far show that the rail line would go through the center of Old Lyme, where there is the town's historic district and a lot of commercial resources. So the people in the community have expressed concerns that this would really threaten the community's cultural, historic, and environmental resources. The first select woman of Old Lyme, uh, to paraphrase, basically said at a meeting that this is not a not-in-my-backyard issue, this is really about the town's survival.
1: If you want to see a map of the proposed route, go to nextnewengland.org and we'll be keeping an eye on this story. If true high-speed rail seems like a faraway dream, there's always the highway. And to get to and from many parts of New England, that means a well-known road that many people hate. I-84. One of the reasons for that hatred is a short stretch that runs right through the heart of Hartford. When it was built, it caused two big problems. First, it meant that all the interstate traffic was bottlenecked onto a twisty, turny, elevated roadway with a series of complicated on and off ramps infusing new traffic into the mix. There's commuters, delivery trucks, locals just trying to get across town.
6: Sections of this roadway have a crash rate that is four times higher uh, than other comparable state highways. And on an average, there are two crashes per day, often causing
1: severe travel delays. That's Connecticut's Governor Dan Malloy speaking at a press conference announcing new plans for the viaduct section of the highway, which is, in Transportation Department terms, past its useful life. We'll get back to that plan in a minute, but let's address the second problem with the highway. When highways were built right through cities in the middle of the 20th century, they destroyed neighborhoods and physically separated communities. It's a problem well known to the nation's transportation secretary, Anthony Fox. He grew up in a neighborhood that was cut off by a highway, and he talked to NPR's Brian Naylor back in April.
7: The values of the 1950s are still embedded in our built environment. And the prejudices, the, the notions of who's in and who's out, are still part of the built environment, and we can do something about it.
1: But how to fix the problem? Norm Garrick studies transportation engineering for the University of Connecticut. He just wrote about Rochester, New York's attempt to fix a 1950s planning disaster for CityLab. Norm Garrick, welcome to Next. Nice to be on. So let me ask you first about what you see in this proposal to rebuild the I-84 Viaduct through Hartford there were a couple of plans that were put out there. One would be a, a tunnel yes. that would be very much like the, the big dig tunnel that was built through Boston. And then there was another plan that would provide for a, a brand new raised highway, which nobody really thought was feasible but was was out there as a proposal. And then there's the proposal that they have more or less agreed on, which is building a roadway that is either at grade or below grade, and then and then decking it over at, in places so that you can reconnect some of the city. What did you see in these three proposals, and what do you think about the plan that has come out now?
2: I think we're we're getting the best solution that we can possibly get, given the, um, the political situation that we're in, given how people think about transportation. It, it gets to one of the interesting things for
1: our program, which is that I-84 is a very important corridor for the entire New England region, but it also winds through Hartford. The part that we're talking about fixing is the part that's right in the city of Hartford, but how that gets rebuilt and how efficient a highway that is, how long it's closed, that means a lot to the rest of the people in the region. So from your perspective, Norm, how much should we be thinking about the local impact when we rebuild a highway like this, and how much should we be thinking about the
2: larger impact of the entire region? Well, we have to think about the local impact because when these facilities were being built first, the local impact was almost an afterthought. So now we're getting to the stage realizing the, the, the overall impact, and so we're getting a rethinking. I mean, the long term, the overall impact is also important. But if you look at what is actually happening with that freeway, most of the traffic is local. It's not really about the, the the true traffic. We do need true traffic facilities, but much of the traffic that uses the facility is local to the Hartford metropolitan region. In fact, local to Hartford, West Hartford, and Glastonbury.
1: Well, so, so then help us design a better highway. Maybe, I don't know, the ship has sailed for this particular redesign. But every single interstate highway in America has both local usage, commuters, people just trying to get across town. Right. And then it also has a lot of people who are taking their families on vacation or long-haul truckers who need to get produce from one part of the, the country to, to another. How might we design a highway that takes all of these things into account and gets people where they need to go in a more efficient way than we have?
2: Well, I think you're right. The ship has sailed. I mean, we're not going to be redesigning the the, the interstate highway system. What we're doing now is um, mitigating the impacts on cities. What happened um, 60 years ago was that these things were built through cities, and it turns out that not even the person that signed the bill, um, President Eisenhower, realized what he had been, <laughs> what he had signed. He did not realize that he was signing a bill that that would allow highways to be built through cities. But the ship is sailed, as you said. What was the
1: substantial impact of the highways that went through these cities when they were built 60 years ago? And what happened
2: to towns like Rochester or Hartford? So, what we were trying to do um and i don't think it was obvious to a lot of people at the time but what we were trying to do was to turn the cities into something different from what they were so um up until around 1950 cities operated like they did for 100 years There were um they didn't depend on private ways of getting into the city or getting around the city they were largely for walking but and people um traveling longer distances would use public transi- transit. So they didn't have a lot of facilities for cars, they didn't have parking, they didn't have the big roads. But around 1950, the cities were losing population and so they felt that the only way to solve the problem at the time was to become more like the suburbs where you had free parking, where you had lots of parking, where you had big roads, etc. But also there was a move to remake the city in other ways. Um, A large swath of the city was essentially leveled, much bigger single-use buildings. So what we had in a very, very short period of time was a total transformation of the cities. And an
1: important part of that, of course, is that the neighborhoods that these highways were built through were not the wealthy neighborhoods. We were not knocking down the homes of wealthy people to build these highways. People said these were slums. Yes. And, And now... Those neighborhoods, in many cases, especially in places like Hartford, they've never recovered from that.
2: They've never recovered, and the downtowns have never recovered. The downtowns have never functioned um, properly in any of these places. And you look at um, the flip side are places like Providence where not as much of this damage was done. and. Um, Providence downtown is much more valued and valuable than downtown Hartford. And why simply. is that? What, what happened? What's different about Providence? Well, um, Hartford was had the resources to do all the damage. Um, Providence didn't. So um, in, to some extent, it, it retained a lot of the fabric that is now uh, highly valued. You have a city like um, Cambridge where the population rose up against... Um, the, the modernization, if you want to use that term. So, for example, if you look at a map of, of of Cambridge, Massachusetts, all the freeways come up to the boundary, and it's almost as if there's a big magnet in that city that's repelling freeways. None of them penetrate into the city. So can you imagine um, Harvard Yard with a freeway through it? That was a plan. But cities like that, you had community activists that were successful in turning back um, th- th- these changes, when you look at um, Boston now, 10 years
1: since the big dig officially was, was completed, yeah. it was around 2006, what do you see there? I mean, this was, a, this was a project that was meant to take an elevated highway like the one that carries I-84 through Hartford and bury it below ground and, and re-knit together some parts of the city that have long been divided by this, this highway. Um, it went wildly over budget, but but now... What do you see in the Big Dig that is a good thing, maybe a bad thing?
2: I think most people would say that um, the Big Dig was a huge success from the perspective of what it did to re-knit in the city. Um, I think people are still complaining about how much they had to pay for this. But the idea of just taking the freeway and putting it onto the ground and hiding it, given the cost, um, and given the fact that you're really not dealing with, with, you know, you're, you're not really addressing the issue... That is the idea of bringing all of this traffic into the city. Well, and that issue, I mean, it has, it has other costs. One of the things you study
1: is is parking patterns yes. and, and how much surface parking a, a community like Hartford has, that if you have a freeway, whether it's it's underground, hidden from view, or it's coming in on a big, old, dusty structure, that still means you have all these cars coming in, which means you've got to have places to put them, which means you've got huge parcels of land that are unused for anything other than parking cars all day.
2: Exactly. And I think that's so in Hartford, we have finally gotten to the state where we understand that the, the, the park, the extent of the parking is a problem. Having the freeway elevated above the city is a problem. But what we are doing is dealing with the symptom. And we're not really dealing with the underlying cause, the fact that we have turned this city into a car-oriented city. And we see this all over the world. Um, I'm going to bring up Zurich, which is my, one of my favorite cities in the world. And the, the mantra there is that you are welcome, but your car is not. <laughs> and that would work very, very well in Hartford. It's not that we're getting rid of cars and that we're going to say you cannot absolutely use cars. But you don't make it necessarily the easiest way to get into your city. Norm Garrick, thanks so much for joining us. Thank I appreciate you for
1: having me. The urban renewal programs of the 1950s have had a lasting impact on other New England cities, too. Georgia Moody brings us the story of what happened to Portland, Maine's Little Italy.
3: Newbury Street was a world unto itself. You thought that the whole world was Italian, you know, and unfortunately it wasn't.
8: Portland, Maine. It's little Italy. That's where we lived. From 4th Street to
7: Congress Congre Street, Street and, and from Mumford Street, Newbury Street, India Street, uh, up Street, to, uh, Federal uh, Street,
3: Vine Street, Deer Street, Deer Vine and Chatham, Chatham Street. Street. That was the heart of the Italian community. They had taken their little piece of Italy, their piece of heaven, and brought it here. And it lasted up until the 50s.
8: And then urban renewal came in and cut Little Italy right in half.
3: They just came in with bulldozers and it was gone. It was gone. The smells and the sights. You could walk down that street and you could smell anything you wanted to smell, from bread to pasta to meat. You
8: would see people sitting on their steps with their little cups of oil and cut fresh Italian bread. I'm Giovanna Ricci.
3: My name is Camillo Luigi Regia, and I grew up on 33 Newbury Street, right in the middle of Little Italy.
8: Teresa Atrapaldi, who was my grandmother, started the store at 47 India Street, and then we had Favor store at 72 India Street, Cartonio's at 45, and Amato's at 71. So we had four Italian groceries within a, a block.
3: Each house had, had fig tree, apple tree, pear tree, plum tree, gardens, they all had gardens. And that's where most of the parties in the neighborhood took place.
7: My name is Lou Giamatti. I was born in 1922. Most of the Italians, they all congregated around the St. Peter's Church. We, made it, we were baptized there. Uh, we made our communion there. We had our confirmation there. And a lot of us were married there in the, in the church, see.
3: Little Italy was, it, even though it was, it was mainly Italian, there were other families that lived there.
7: Off of Middle Street, there was a small Jewish community. And the Irish was centered mostly up the upper part of Montjoy Hill. You know, and everybody got
0: along fine. There was, there was never any trouble. On Newberry Street next door to what used to be the synagogue. My Italian grandparents lived on the second floor on one side, and on the third floor were my Irish grandparents, and that's how my mother and father met. My name is Anne Balzano, that's my maiden name, Rand. We were far from wealthy, but we were not poor.
3: There was nothing that they didn't have. The houses were always maintained very nicely. Were they wealthy financially? Probably not. They worked. They were working people.
7: Carpenters, masons, bricklayers, uh, uh, plasterers, they believed work with their hands.
0: They were not high-income people, but it but they, they definitely, definitely was not a slump.
6: My name's Tom Vallow, and I came to Portland in 1970 as the executive director of the Portland Urban Renewal Authority. At the end of World War II, America was transitioning from a wartime economy to a peacetime economy, saw slums in the big cities, and said, something has got to be done. And out of this came a federally sponsored urban renewal program. Cities were allowed to ask the federal government for funding. And the idea was you would remove the slums and blight, have a new vacant property, and then private parties would come forward and be interested.
3: But there had to be a purpose for it.
0: A public purpose. If it is, can be proved that it is for the greater good and it's absolutely necessary. And and that process is called eminent domain.
8: Eminent domain is if you don't want to sell, the city has the right to take your property and give you what they feel they want to for it.
0: What they
3: call fair market value. The first project that they were involved in was in Deer Vine and Chatham, and that took place in 1955.
8: Everybody was up in arms, and they went to the council meetings, and there was nothing we could do. The council had the last word. And everybody said, well, it must have been all said and done even before you told us about it.
7: These Italians built those houses, lived in lived in those houses, and they had planned to die in those homes. The city comes and takes the home, Gives them three, four, five thousand dollars. Where do they go?
3: That was it, and you were out.
8: Down went Chatham Street. Down went Deer Street. Down went Vine Street, and all of those people were displaced, us included.
3: You know the houses were gone. They leveled everything. There was there was nothing there. It was
7: picking lots.
8: And what did they do with it? They built office buildings.
7: And now it's uh, it's almost all commercial, the high-rise hotels, garages. You destroyed a whole neighborhood to build that?
8: Grant you, the office buildings are giving people work and so forth, but you took part of us with you.
3: There was no closeness anymore. There was no cumada, cumada next door that they could go and talk to.
8: Cremo's Bakery went out of business. Lawrence Spear's Meat Market closed up. Prevorada never reopened his store. The Jewish people that lived in the area of Little Italy had moved out of the area. And it it was sad because after everybody scattered, you couldn't get together anymore.
7: You
3: know, all of that which you treasured and all of that which is important to you if somebody comes and says what you have is substandard, it's no good anymore. You're not worth anything. It was awful, 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 awful.
6: The Urban Renewal Program, in the long run, got a bad name. We were not looking to benefit Company A or Company B or Company C. I think the overall community benefited greatly, and that was the intent.
0: I don't think there was anything really nefarious uh, going on. I think that there was a a lack of real consideration for the people with with the glorious thought that we'll we'll do this and uh, everybody will be better off for it.
3: I'm not saying that they're bad people. I'm just saying that they made a tremendous mistake. You know, and they destroyed something that was absolutely beautiful. The house is a physical thing, but the closeness of a community, once you break that up, can never be
1: replaced. That story by producer Georgia Moody comes from the Salt Institute in Portland, Maine. Coming up, what are the biggest issues in each of the New England states this election year? We'll find out next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, Supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. For the next two weeks in the show, we're going to ask some really smart observers of politics in New England about the issues that really matter in their states this November. Yeah, issues, remember them? Joining us from WNPR in Hartford is the host of the Colin McEnroe Show, Colin McEnroe. From the Political Roundtable on Rhode Island Public Radio is political science professor Maureen Moakley and from Vermont Public Radio, Capitol Bureau reporter Peter Hirschfeld. Welcome to Next. Well, thanks.
9: Thank you. Thanks for having us, John.
1: Colin, I'm gonna start with you. We're trying to figure out what the really big issues are in each of the New England states. In Connecticut, I've been following this pretty closely, there's a really slow economic recovery from the recession. Is that really what people are thinking about more than anything else?
10: I think that is both in reality and perception. I mean, we we lag behind uh, our neighbor states in economic recovery. Uh, the uh, gap between rich and poor is widening. The jobs that have come back are coming back at lower uh, lower wages than the ones that that disappeared, and and still our unemployment level is is higher. Than it was in 2000, December of 2007. So yeah, you know, I mean, I think you have a very economically discontented state, and in that situation, people basically just sort of hate everybody who has any kind of power or any kind of decision-making ability. I mean, Governor Malloy has a 24% <laughs> approval rating. I think like Shingles has a 26% approval rating. <laughs> so I mean, like pe- people are just very, very angry, and and that tends to foster, uh, you know, electoral turnover, which I'm sure we'll talk about as we go.
1: You know, and it's it's not just at the state level. Obviously, there are problems with the state budget. There's a slow economic recovery. But, Colin, it's showing up in the cities as well. I mean, you've got the capital city, Hartford, on the brink of bankruptcy we have other cities struggling as well so it's it's not just playing out at the state level or at the federal level with maybe discontent at, at Congress it really gets down to local politics
10: oh yeah and certainly at the cities the unemployment problem is insane I mean it's you know we have maybe a five point one five point two uh, unemployment rate uh, statewide but then you look at the cities it's eight point nine or nine point two Yeah, whatever economic problem you're talking about double it in the cities
1: marine how about you in Rhode Island I mean, one of the big issues that people are talking about as we head to November?
11: Well, certainly economic development also, and it's really interesting because starting in the recession through the end, Rhode Island was always at the bottom of the heap. We had the highest unemployment rates consistently, not only in New England, but at some different variation to the points in the country. And so, again, there is this deep-seated resentment of the establishment. Of, uh, uh, of things that are going on in terms of progressive policies. And uh, I think it's going to show up in the, in the presidential primaries. Uh, turnout for the GOP doubled. And there were lots of people that registered Republican. Trump carried the state, and Sanders carried the state. And this was considered to be Hillary Clinton territory. So in one segment of the population is clearly disillusioned, angry, And it's probably going to show up in the ballot box. And as I say, there's a whole uh, cadre of people who don't have jobs. Who we had pension reform, which was a fabulous accomplishment of the governor. But nonetheless, some people were caught short. And so there is this residue of support. And I, you know, I expect that uh, Trump will do pretty well in the in the presidential election.
1: Well, you mentioned your governor, Gina Raimondo. Maybe you can talk about her. I mean, Colin just mentioned. Uh, Connecticut governor who has uh, an almost historically low approval rating. And it's it's really kept him from being able to do some of the things he probably wants to do. Uh, what's the Gina Raimondo story?
11: Gina Raimondo uh, came on the scene and was extremely effective. She was general treasurer and she got pension reform statewide passed. Nobody expected that to happen. That was the beginning. And she has been very, very aggressive in terms of economic development, in counter-distinction to Connecticut. You know, when they lost GE, we were campaigning for a piece of that action. We have lowered corporate taxes, and we have disbanded some regulations. And she's gone out and been fairly successful in uh, suggesting the turnaround that is, in fact, occurring. I mean, we're going to have a surplus. And she expects to get some part of GE. PayPal. There's a lot of Wexford. There's a lot of industries that are looking in Rhode Island and that has long-term ramifications, but she has been very successful.
1: A surplus, Colin? Do you know what that even looks like in Connecticut?
10: (laughs) I'm getting incredibly depressed the more you talk.
11: Well, we joke about the fact that, you know, now it's Connecticut at the bottom of the pile, so we feel somewhat relieved.
10: (laughs) Oh, good. I'm so glad that
1: you can do that uh, to us and and, and for us. Uh, Well, in Vermont, you're looking for a new governor, Peter open seat for the first time in 6 years. Yeah, so so what is that what does that race look like? Tell us about the people who are running.
9: You've got on the Democratic side a woman named Sue Minter who's touting her legacy as the Secretary of Transportation here when tropical storm Irene devastated the state. She served as chief recovery officer for a period after that happened. And so she was able to navigate bureaucracy then and is going to be able to make government work for people in ways that it hasn't uh, before. She's going up against a guy named Phil Scott. He's a Republican. He is the sitting lieutenant governor here. Phil Scott is more interested in talking about what government ought not to be doing in order to get the economy moving than what it needs to be doing more of.
1: As you watch that race, I mean, how do you see it play out and how do you see it play out uh, along some of the national political lines that we've seen? Obviously, Bernie Sanders from the state of Vermont had a very big impact on the national race. Is Bernie Sanders having a very big impact on overall the political conversation in Vermont heading into the season? Will he have any impact on, say, the governor's race? He certainly could. And I think
9: that that impact would come down to turnout. If you see Bernie Sanders enter this race, stumping for the Democrat, trying to get his supporters out uh, to vote for her, I think he could have a a dramatic impact on the outcome of this race. Um, But, you know, I think when voters think about what they're looking for in a governor, they're looking for something very different than what they're looking for in a president often. And we've heard. the economy, the issue in these other states. And, and of course, that's true here. Um, it's always the case, but I think issues of affordability and financial wherewithal are especially potent this cycle. College education uh, is more expensive in Vermont for public in state tuition than almost everywhere else, anywhere else in the country. People are struggling to pay for health care, they're struggling to pay for child care.
1: Peter, are there some other issues that are coming up in Vermont that you might not hear about in the other New England states? Uh, For instance, it seems like since there's a governor's race there, some people might be talking about gun control.
9: Two years ago, you wouldn't have heard a candidate for governor dare utter the words gun control. Sue Minter made it the centerpiece of one of her campaign ads during the Democratic primary. This is an issue she thinks can be a winner. She thinks we have reached a critical mass on this issue where the number of people that are going to come out in favor of a candidate who's promising to have universal background checks, i.e. eliminate the so-called internet and gun show loopholes, is going to outstrip the number of people that are going to organize against her because of that position. And so that'll be an interesting test case. Is that a net gain for politicians now? I think you're seeing Democrats' uh, strategic calculus at the national level on that count saying, yes, we think this is a political winner for us. Um, we also have another a smattering of other social issues. 100 Syrian refugees are uh, scheduled to be resettled in Rutland, Vermont. It's an issue that has caused a lot of consternation and division in that city, and candidates— take on the appropriateness of that sort of policy is something that voters are looking to, uh, if not because they're living in Rutland themselves, but, be, but because it serves as kind of a uh, litmus test for where
1: they're going to stand on other social issues. What do you think the impact of some of the Trump rhetoric around immigration has been? And what do you hear people talking about in Rhode Island?
11: Well, I think his rhetoric some re- resonates to a certain constituency. But the difference is in Rhode Island, we have extremely progressive policies when it comes to immigration. Uh, There's a great reluctance to apprehend or go after uh, illegal immigrants, and I expect there are a significant number. And so the strength of the Latino community in preventing certain actions or policies uh, is quite strong, and uh, we have a tradition of that. And so most people expect Uh, the whole idea of immigration and allowing people to settle. We have a great network and support system uh, that's been in place for decades where we take people in. So it's not as contentious a visible issue, but again, I do think that uh, there's a stealth factor there in the sense that I've heard a lot of conservatives say, you know, we do all this for immigrants, we're doing all this in terms of education and schooling and so forth, as well as social welfare policies, and what are we doing for everybody else?
1: Peter, I think it's fair to say that Vermont uh, isn't changing as fast as Rhode Island or Connecticut, and it didn't, in the first place, have the type of diverse population that these other states have. But clearly, immigration is having an impact in your state as well.
9: It is having an impact, and I think that when you are a state that has such a small population of Immigrants, um, African-Americans, Latinos, small shifts in those demographics can have an outsized influence on the conversation that's going on in this state about the, the meaning of that. And what we're seeing in a place like Rutland is a uh, basic uh, visceral opposition among a large segment of that community – that says, look, for a whole host of reasons, we can't afford to have these folks coming to live with us. Whether it's because of public safety, whether it's because of the impact they're going to have on uh, public infrastructure, there, school costs, public safety costs, and it's fascinating to see this divide open up in Vermont, which is uh, viewed by a lot of people here, and I think a lot of people outside it, is this uh, ultra-blue liberal haven uh, that likes to think of itself as open and inclusive and welcoming to, to everybody who wants to be here. And it, I think the, to an extent, Donald Trump at the top of the Republican ticket has emboldened a, a group of people here that might not have otherwise felt so comfortable making their views as public as they have. There are critics of that movement saying, They are uh, very clearly uh, being influenced by their own uh, latent or overt racism, and that the fact that these folks aren't white and Christian is the reason that they don't want them coming here. Uh, But this is uh, a really intense debate that is, in some cases, fracturing elements of these communities, and it's something that the state is not anywhere close to coming to terms with, and I think it's gonna be a, a long process to get there.
1: One of the main things, Colin, we're gonna be covering on our show over the course of the next not just months but years, though, is this demographic reality that's happening all across the country, is whether people like it or not, America is changing, and there's going to be more and more people coming from other parts of the world, there are gonna be more people who are speaking Spanish in other languages, But I think in New England, it's even more stark. We're a really old part of this country. Connecticut, Rhode Island, Vermont would be aging even faster if it wasn't for people coming in. And I guess I just wonder if it's not this election cycle um, or this political season, if at a certain point we start to to bend a little bit toward the demographic shifts and say, well, look, I think the only thing that is going to save our region from getting really old really fast is people coming in from the outside.
10: Yeah, I think actually this election in Connecticut will tell you a lot about that. I mean, first of all, there are parts of Connecticut that are not di- not diverse at all. The second congressional district, which is in the east, it's Joe Courtney's district, is 85 percent white. I- I'd be surprised if there are a lot of 85 percent white congressional districts in America. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, I, I think when you see how Donald Trump does in, in this state, and I haven't written him off in this state at all. I mean, we have a huge unaffiliated voter population. Uh, there are parts of this state where he can run very strong. The Republicans are poorly organized here. They don't have good leadership. But if Trump does well, that'll tell you you know, that really so far anyway, that white vote that he is going to be depending on is still a pretty significant one. If Hillary Clinton does well, and a lot of her Success in the primaries was certainly driven by populations of color concentrated in cities that'll make your point a little bit more I think this will be an interesting cast in terms of political power anyway and and vote getting power or vote delivering power this cycle will be really interesting tell you a lot about the condition of Connecticut in that regard I'm gonna bring up Bernie Sanders again in
1: part because one of the things that he talked so much about during his unsuccessful run for president was the power of money in politics and how big a corrupting influence that can have on the system. Um, Some observers say that it's one of the most important things that we have to grapple with in America, but it doesn't seem necessarily to rise to the top of most political debates when it gets closer to an election.
11: Well, this year it matters in the sense that uh, I think there's been a real change in slowly but surely the old guard is leaving Uh, There were legislators who didn't fill out their financial forms, uh, you know, ignored the Ethics Commission. They were very cavalier. And little by little, the ground has shifted. And a lot of the old guard is leaving. We had a chair of the Finance Committee who was robbing a nonprofit that he ran and other unsavory things that we don't even know about. The FBI is after him. We had another legislator, who part of this old guard, who wasn't even living in his district, And so this is the kind of thing that uh, people are really furious about because it represents a kind of corruption that angers a lot of people. And recently, uh, a reflection of that was a Supreme Court decision. We have a very strong ethics commission, but a quirk in the Constitution uh, exempted legislators from the overview of the ethics commission. There is a, a question on the ballot which will pass handily about reinstating the authority of the Ethics Commission over the legislature.
9: I can remember commiserating with reporters years ago when you do a story on campaign finance that you thought just exposed the madness of the system we had and you could hear a pin drop after it It didn't get anywhere near the reception you thought it would and there just wasn't the kind of outrage that you thought that it would elicit. I think people are coming around to the fact that there's a serious problem when it comes to the influence of corporate money in state and national and even local politics. I think people are more turned on to the issue than they ever have been before. It's not the kind of thing that people are going to bring up in their top 10 of issues that they care about when they're polled, for instance, but I think it's something that has begun to speak to people on a gut level. And while I think it's going to take some time for uh, longtime incumbents to pass out of office before it can be a a real deciding factor in elections, I think it's only a matter of time before politicians realize they're going to have to uh, get hip to this new sentiment among voters that they don't want somebody that is um, tacitly uh, influenced, or or explicitly, by the hundreds of thousands of dollars that are funding their campaign apparatuses.
10: For us, it's a slightly different situation where, in fact, the incarceration of our former Governor Roland triggered a whole bunch of election reforms, including public financing, which we have now here for state races. The problem is that due to some court decisions uh, and some finagling uh, by, by, by the state parties, a lot of the money that was supposed to be locked out of the system by a public financing law is trickling back into the system. We're starting to ask the question for all the millions of dollars that we're spending providing public grants for people to run election campaigns. Are we getting the clean elections that we ordered up in that process? Colin McEnroe is host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Peter Hirschfeld is Capital Bureau
1: reporter for Vermont Public Radio. And Maureen Moakley is a professor of political science at Rhode Island University and also a member of the Political Roundtable on Rhode Island Public Radio. Thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, John. Coming up, is it trash? Is it treasure? Antique or secondhand? We'll take you to the Brimfield Flea Market, Next. Remember Brigadoon, where the protagonists discover a magical village that only appears one day every hundred years? Brimfield, Massachusetts is kind of like that. The town only has about 3,500 permanent residents, but for a week in May, July, and September, the town transforms into a bustling tent city known as the Brimfield Antique Flea Market. The market dates back to the 1950s and boasts about 250,000 visitors these days, stretching half a mile down Route 20. At Brimfield, you can find anything from a statue of the Buddha to your library's old card catalog to action figures from the original Star Wars. At a market like this, the stuff comes with stories. And next producer Andrew Moraskin found plenty on her visit over the weekend.
4: What is the definition of an antique? An antique is at least a
12: hundred years old. Some people have different definitions, but most of the dictionaries a hundred years old or older.
4: What's the difference between an antique and an old piece of crap?
7: Well, Ten times the price.
4: If it's older yeah. than you,
0: it's an antique.
4: Oh. <laughs> Are you here looking for
0: something in particular for goodies just for goodies no particular thing whatever catches my eye I fall in love and I get it the glitter glass glass usually does it for me and pretty wood so you know whatever it is if it's made out of pretty wood I'm I'm falling in love do you have a budget I never have a budget he has a budget
3: I'm Tal and this is Hannah usually the principal is We throw, we we don't bring in anything before we throw something out. Do
4: you have like a purge before you come to Brimfield? Do you say, okay, honey, what are we getting rid of?
3: This is what we, this is the dynamics. I'm I'm for that, but she, (laughs) Hannah can't give up, you know, (laughs) so easily. So it, it gets accumulated because nothing is worth fight.
13: My name is Jamie
0: Carpenter. I'm from Lancaster, Massachusetts
4: what does it mean that it's an- that it's antique well
0: you know it just means it's had like this big long life and it survived all this time but when i look at some of the pieces like we have a sheridan table over there that the turnings on the leg i mean to think that they were done 300 years ago you know and there's some damage here but i mean it look like at it. this really old smell like it smells like when you go
4: to a colonial village like a historical village
0: yes I mean think 300 years ago and there's there's no electricity and there's no you know so that's that's
13: what I love
4: really like like art deco mid-century art nouveau that's my style that's my style and I do like the you know the antique salvage where people take like old wood and then repurpose it into a cool table or do that like that Oh my God, that gets me. I love it. Like old grandma smell and like, oh, mothballs and dirt and rusty things. Yeah,
13: it gets me. Is
4: there anything that you have here that has a, a story to it that you really love?
13: Well, you know, we just, we've done a lot of with toys for years and years and years. And just every person you talk to that collects toys has their story about how they played with it and what they did when they were a kid, you know, and then... A lot of times it was I played with them and killed them and now I need to replace them you know (laughs) (laughs) well this one's a Millennium Falcon that's $85 that's from the first movie and they continue to make them for each movie so they get later ones you know this one is the Y-Wing is $65 some of the vehicles for Star Wars go in the hundreds because they're harder and rarer to find
4: any crazy flea market stories?
9: I didn't recognize Diane Keaton once, and I was talking to Diane Keaton and sold her a bunch of stuff, and it took me a couple of shows to actually realize who she was. And now we've become friends over the, over time.
14: Uh, Brimfield is interesting, but they are super overpriced. It's Yankee price.
4: So what what is your full name?
14: Yves Bernard Martin. I grew up in Paris, but I moved to New York when I was 20. Uh, My father was freed from a labor camp in Germany by Americans. I grew up, everything, the best stuff was American-made. The post-war years, you know. If you had an American car, you were either very rich or a hood, you know. And the stuff, the mixer, you name it, whatever, the pliers, everything made in America was Top Gun would last for a lifetime. And then uh, democracy moved in. Democracy was there, but suddenly it took a turn where it's millions of people. We were less people 50 years ago, and everybody wants the same stuff. Look how many iPhones are being sold each time a new one comes out. I mean, it's mind-boggling.
4: I have to ask you about something that I saw. Why do you carry Nazi emblems and uh, memorabilia?
6: Um, well, it's part of history to start with. Um, there's a lot of collectors for it. Um, missiles.
4: What do people say? Like, when? Why did they say that they want
11: it?
6: Um, one, well some, it's for a piece of history and others that collect it. Um, but they don't just well, some people just collect the German stuff, but as well, other people collect all military type stuff too.
13: Jewish Holocaust museums oh. and have come. And um, they especially look for things with names on them.
6: Um, I don't have any opinions. There's a lot of stuff I sell that I don't necessarily want to sell. But if people are out there looking for it, that's my business. I have to. Or I don't have a business and I don't make any money.
4: What do people want secondhand keys for?
12: make jewelry. And sometimes to fit old locks up.
4: What do you mean to fit old locks up?
12: Sometimes they don't have a key for their lock and they come and try keys and they fit their locks.
4: Seriously? I always thought every key was unique.
12: Well, you figured wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Because there would be a hundred trillion keys out there if everyone was unique.
4: So, if somebody wanted to break into my house, they could just come in here, buy a bunch of keys, and And then try it.
12: And and probably not break into your house. Most of them, if they want to break into your house, they look at the lock, and uh, they pick the lock and go right on in. Most of them do like they did me about a, eh, it's been a month ago now. They kicked the glass, broke the hundred-year-old door.
4: What item do you own that you love the most? Nothing. You're not attached to stuff. It sounds like you're attached to the door.
12: No, it's just that it was old. It was an antique. Any antique, whether it's mine or yours or any antique, can't be replaced. So if you destroy it, that's, that's just like killing a person because he took antiquity away. He destroyed antiquity.
4: What, what's your name? Dave. Last name? You don't have to give it. Just, Rosie's Resales. What's the story behind the centaur lady at the front? The horsewoman.
9: The horsewoman? I bought her here. I bought her here from another dealer who had her had no information on her. But Rosie wants to put wings on her. Right? <laughs> Make her look like a. The winged horse.
4: Oh, peg, a Pegasus. A
9: Pegasus. But it's a, real, it's a real carousel bottom with a uh, mannequin top. So it's, it's a folk art piece.
4: What would you like to sell it for?
9: Bottom would be 225 right now. I think if we put the wings on it, that's gonna be a dollars $1, $1,500 piece.
4: Why would it go up so much with the wings? Because then it will
9: become an art piece. Somebody will want that, put it in a loft, put it in a fancy place.
4: What is your most valuable item here?
9: I
7: would have to say my 1966 Beatle ticket from Shea Stadium, it's worth about $1,500. Actually it's worth 2,500, but we're only selling it for 15. It's signed by Sid Bernstein who brought them to America and it's just so collectible. I mean, there's some other bands out there too, but the Beatles really rocked it, man. They came here and they stormed America, you know. Stones (laughs) came, everybody came. But I still think they're the best, man.
1: Check out photographs of Andrew Moraskin's trip to the Brimfield Antique Flea Market, including pictures of the horse lady, at nextnewengland.org. While you're online, we'd love your feedback on the show. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England, or send an email to wnpr.org. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Maraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at ToddMerrill.com. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Broadcasting Network, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.